So tonight's talk, maybe to start by sharing um, a brief story. This summer I uh, was spending some time with some friends and uh, one was this, a woman who when she was 35 her husband died of brain cancer and um, it was a very deep love and a huge loss. And because I'm writing and uh, teaching a lot about true refuge, I, I asked her the question um, through this, through this incredibly uh, deep pain, uh, what did you take refuge in? What helped you? So I asked that question a lot, what helped you? What got you through it? She told me that they, when they got the diagnosis, um, really they're only, at the most they knew that he had about six months, not long. And so she said what got her through it was that she basically said to herself, no matter what, I don't want to have any regrets. And the flip side of that, of no regrets, is I really want to live this true to my heart. I really want to show up with kindness. And that was her mantra, this, this um, walking it through with no regrets. And it's what guided her when he was in a whole lot of pain or when he was unreasonable, which happened, or when she was exhausted or despairing. And some part of her said, okay, what does it mean to really live this moment with no regrets? And in a way, when I say the word take refuge in, in a way it's, it means what do we need to remember, to reconnect with? And for her, that remembering or reconnecting was, what does it mean to be true to my heart through this, and then this moment, and then this one? And I, I think that's an incredibly powerful inquiry, you know, to say, we can ask it in the big things, you know, what do we want to take refuge in when we're losing a friend or a lover? or when something in our own body goes wrong, or we lose a job, or as I mentioned some weeks ago, my friend's workshop burned down. What do we want, how do we want to take refuge? What do we want to remember? How do we want to live those moments with no regret? And I think it's also an important question when it doesn't seem like it's high drama, because we get so habitual, we live in such a, a trance so much of the time, so robotic, what does it mean to live the rest of today? And I mean today like here, this Wednesday night with no regrets, to really show up for these moments. This is Rumi. Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the surfs come back. This turn towards what you deeply love saves you. So the, the teaching really is to remember what matters. And that if we, if we live our moments in some way remembering what most matters, those moments will be aligned with our heart. And the opposite is also true. That in those moments that we're fixated on wants that aren't from our depth, or kind of habitual ways of grasping and moving through the day, when we're living like that, when we're forgetting what matters, and so we're caught up in proving that we're right or getting the next fix in some way, kind of making it through a stressful day, um, it keeps us caught in a sense of self that's small and insecure and striving and just trying to get through the day. 
So there is a sense of if you were going to die at the end of that day, there would be some regrets. Like, where was I? Who was I? Did I really live it? So this is, you're getting a feeling for tonight's talk. And um, I initially was going to entitle it, The Road to Hell is Paved with Bad Intentions. Because I got that from a Sopranos episode, you know. Um, so you could say it that way, because I never liked the original phrase. But you could also say that the path to freedom arises from really awake intentions. See, I don't think there's bad intentions. I think they're misguided. I think we get caught in fear, caught in a sense of smallness and deficiency, and the sense of our intention narrows and becomes superficial or petty or mean-spirited. It's not bad, it's just misguided. Although when I wrote that, saw the Sopranos episode, misguided intention didn't quite hit it <laughs> on, the, on those. So how do we explore this? How do we explore really aligning ourselves with our deepest intentions, what the Buddhists call our aspirations, when our habit is to forget? I, I've always liked um, the way D.H. Lawrence puts it. He says, men are not free when they are doing just what they like. Men are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And that takes some diving. So in a way, our path is one of diving, of kind of pausing and sensing, okay, I'm on some sort of automatic going what the surface self wants, but how do I drop into the deepest place, the purity of the heart? So the way we'll explore this tonight, and the, the first part really is to um, look more closely at misguided intentions, which really um, motor and energize us through a lot of our day, um, when we're doing just what we like, when we think we are, the habitual condition wants. And then how we can pause and inquire more deeply, how we can drop into what the deepest self wants. So I sometimes think of what our daily patterns of wanting as kind of substitute wants, in that we think that they'll make us more happy and safe and free and so on. But the traditional metaphor is it's like drinking salt water, that the more we pursue them, whatever it is, impressing people or proving something or accumulating, it's like drinking salt water. It does not quench the thirst. In fact, it keeps us hooked on that, on pursuing it in that way. So what are the kind of basic description or profile of these misguided intentions are they arise from a sense of being a separate, deficient self. When we're in that kind of trance of I'm separate, I'm deficient, something's wrong with me, our intentions, what kind of move us through the day, will end up being narrow. So then, what are some examples? Well, if we're separate and deficient, we'll, and we'll feel the pain of that, um, our intention will be to get a fix that in some way numbs it. So that might be that we get a fix in a very obvious way from over-consuming, from drugs, from food. Or it may be a fix of having somebody else's approval, or it may be the fix of being able to check things off the list. Another one of our kind of misguided intentions is we think if we judge ourselves enough, then we'll strong-arm ourselves into being a better person. 
so we that's we spend a lot of time locked into being self-critical. Then there's the obvious intentions of I need to have more in some way if we have more possessions that we can show off or impress people with. In daily life, one of the biggest flags of misguided intentions is how most of what we do has a mindset that we're doing it to in some way secure or improve a future. We live most of our moments with this mental map of time and we're here and we're on our way there and what we're doing now is for there. Now just think for a moment and feel into what happens if we're always offering now for the sake of then, there, the future. There is no arriving here. We've sold our present moment off for a future and we do it all the time. We move through the day as if we're on our way somewhere else. We collect things. It's like we're putting money in the bank for, for a rainy day, but we're always doing it. It's almost like are we checking things off the list so that maybe the last day of our life we'll have nothing we have to do. <laughs> there is a, um, in Tibet, there's a small mammal. It's a predator that eats mice, and I want to read you about it. It eats mice and other rodents, and it's called a marmot. And when it wants to catch a mouse, it sits at the entrance to the mouse hole as if it's meditating and waits. Then when a mouse sticks its head out, the bigger creature grabs it. There must be more in there, he thinks. Rather than eat this one now, I'll save and catch some more. So he sticks the victim under his butt and sits down on it and goes on waiting. When the remaining mice don't come quickly, he leans forward to look into the hole, and the one wedged under his butt sneaks off and escapes. <laughs> Another mouse comes and he grabs and he sits on it. He manages to catch ten mice, one after the other, but they all escape and he ends up having nothing to eat. Why? Because he keeps preparing for what he'll eat later and ignores the present. And then he goes to bed hungry. So I thought that was a great description. <laughs> so part of this trance of the separate self is a sense that something's missing that there's never enough and that we're always doing something now to try to make sure in the future there'll be enough. And the flip side of it is, if we think we're a separate self, there's something wrong and we're always protecting ourselves. In other words, it's not safe to just relax and enjoy the moment. Check it out. Just say to yourself, okay, I give myself permission just to relax and be here right now and find out what happens. Immediately, all the conditioning of a lifetime plus 10,000 other lifetimes kick in with some undercurrent of something bad could happen, I need to prepare, I need to figure things out, I need to do something. So there's this intention from the small self to protect itself, to be vigilant, to get things done, to be geared towards a future. And it's as if in any given moment we're always kind of physically leaning forward like that marmot on our way to the next thing driven by this intention to try to make things okay in the future. And how often, and I invite you to try it right now, do we just sit right here and sense that this moment right here is as precious and sacred is really what matters. This moment matters. 
that the presence that's possible in this moment is the only presence there is. And if our habit is to cover it over with leaning forward, we don't touch the very thing that really makes life worth living, the presence that's here. Now there's a question I get a lot, which is, that all sounds good, but when I leave, I mean, I have to get things done. It's real. I have to earn money. I have to get the car fixed. You know, I have to pay the taxes or get back. You know, I have to do things. There is a future. I have to get things done for the future. And it's true that on the relative level, there's a lot of stress in our lives and our culture, and there is a list that we have to check things off on. And if you ask yourself, what's your real intention? in any of the activity, it's to live the life fully. Everything we're doing is so that we can be alive, feel our aliveness, discover the presence that's really what we are. And what is sad, and this is really the suffering, is that we get so fixated on the doings, we forget the deeper intention of being, of living it. We are postponing things. And I invite you not to take my word for it, just check it out in any moment. Are you postponing the good life? Trying to get everything done so you finally have that free day? Just check it out. So how to live the day without regret? And it doesn't mean that we do nothing. It means that our activity arises from a real place of presence that in our moments we continue to remember and turn towards what we love. And that means even while we're emailing or cleaning the garage or driving to work, that we can pause, you know, we can keep moving, but pause internally and ask that question. What does it mean to be living these moments without regret? What really matters in these moments? can we bring a wholeheartedness to this too? You know, it's not only being wholehearted when we're on the top of the mountain looking at the vista or sitting in the temple meditating, it's being wholehearted while we're driving the kids and doing carpool or shopping. Some of you know the, uh, one of these classic contemporary stories of the Zen Roshi who always taught this, whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly, and when you eat, just eat and taste what you're eating, and so on. And he was caught in the dining room in the monastery at breakfast, eating his breakfast and reading the newspaper. So a very outraged student said, but Rosha, you always tell us when we eat, just eat, you know. And when we read something, just read it. And the Roshi said, and when you eat and read, just eat and read, you know. (laughs) There is a sense that we can bring presence to what we do, and it's not rigid, and it's not uptight. But I'm very aware of myself. I go for these walks each day. It's my way of, um, you know, feeling good and alive and fit and so on. And yet when I go and my intention is, oh, I gotta get my walk in, or oh, I gotta get exercise, or I'm doing this so I can um, feel better, so I can then uh, be more clear when I write, because I'm in a process of writing, that's very different 
than when in a very sincere way I pause and I go, okay, this is it. This is my whole life. There's not a future. It's just this. And all that matters is full presence with just this. And then there's a magic to the moments. And those are the walks that there's no regrets, there's no sense of having missed out. They weren't on my way to the rest of my day. I've been experimenting a lot with intention over the last number of years because in the Buddhist teachings our entire life arises out of intention. That if your intention is to uh, prove yourself superior or others putting them down or if your intention is to be famous or whatever that's going to create one experience of life and if your intention is loving presence that's what arises. So we have, um, IMCW, we have board meetings once a month or so and part of the way we start our board meetings is we have a meditation and then there's a brief prayer that in some ways is an expression of intention. And I've tracked myself and noticed that when I really take it seriously, like I really reflect and sense, all right, for this board meeting, sure, we want to be productive, we have an agenda, and may the spirit of the field here of relationship be friendly and respectful and loving. That there's something that happens that is like magic. And when I forget and get my intention gets narrowed and I get frustrated about whether or not we're moving forward on a certain agenda item, that's what I get. We bring this right into meditation, our intention. For many people, we're told that a good meditation looks like this. It's you get rid of thoughts, you feel kind of blissful or peaceful or this or that. And so there's a sense of trying to develop these skills of concentrating and, and achieve certain states. There's a story of a student that, en that wanted to enter a Zen monastery and he asked the teacher, well, how long will it take me to be enlightened? And the teacher's response was 10 years. And he said, well, what if I try really, really hard the teacher said, 20 years. <laughs> and, it, and the student was really upset. He goes, wait a minute, you just said it would be 10 years. And then he said, for you, 30 years. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Some of you know the uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barry. That was one of my home retreat centers where I first got introduced to Buddhism. It's called IMS. And they, one of the teachers describes in one of the early years they got a letter addressed, the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> <laughs> so again, even with spiritual life, our intention can be like a self that's not there yet, that's trying to get there. And the difference between that and coming in here and sensing in a very sincere way what matters, what matters is just the quality of presence. And just this moment, just this evening, we arrive in a real sense of open-heartedness, of being awake. The difference between that, and that means that whatever comes up, comes up, and the different energies and emotions, they come, but there's a way we say yes to what's here. The challenge is, the more we get stressed, the more our intentions go from the misguided intentions, trying to get somewhere, you know, they get more and more like that. The more stressed, the more fear-based our intentions. 
and we can see it most clearly with each other. I'm going to spend most of the rest of the, the talk on our intentions in our relationships with each other. That the more stressed we are, the more our intentions are really to control the other person and to control how they're, what they're thinking of us and to get our way. The more stressed, that becomes our intention. It's not intimacy, loving presence, and realizing our interconnectedness. Does that make sense? More stress, we regress into misguided intentions. So what happens is that we feel stressed and put down and then we want to put another down and that becomes our intention. We want to show them they're wrong, give them a taste of their own medicine. Or we get stressed and in some way we're competing and want to get the limelight or take from another their time, their money, their attention, whatever, but we want more for ourselves. So I'd like to just invite you to pause here and we'll just do a little bit of kind of a reflecting on where we've gotten caught in misguided intentions, where we've shrunk in a way. Our sense of who we are and our intentions have gotten small. And give you a chance to reflect on that and then uh, we'll, at the closing, do another meditation to explore how we can open that up. So take a moment as we pause just to feel your breath and feel yourself here. Just be receptive because you can, I'm just going to invite you to like let whatever situation wants attention come to mind. Some uh, stressful or difficult situation with another person. Might be a close person or a person you see a lot. And it may be a situation that happens regularly because those are useful to take a look at. So this is kind of a, a tense or stressful part of a relationship with someone. And you might pick a, a recent incident where there was in some way some reactivity. As if you're looking at a movie, just kind of let yourself go to the scene where there's some reactivity with a person. It's a familiar maybe situation with somebody. It doesn't have to be anger, it could be anger or hurt. Could be just distress, upset. But sense what's going on inside you when the person looks the way they look or says what they say or behaves the way they behave. Sense what's going on for you. What you're believing about them and the situation, maybe that they don't care or that if you mattered they'd act differently or that they're going to hurt you or reject you or that they're not respecting you.
And sense what your intention is, what it is you're, you're wanting to happen. Is it to create distance from that person? To prove something to them? To control them? To get them to do something? To placate them? Notice in the habitual way that you react to this person what the intention is in that reaction. Are you trying to protect yourself? Are you trying to fix them? Without judging, just notice really what's happening. And you might notice your sense of yourself when you're operating off of that intention, when you're reacting. Do you like yourself when the intention is misguided? when it comes from fear or craving? Does it get you what you want, really? The first step of diving, our pure intention, is to simply recognize how our misguided intentions operate, how we get caught in trying to make things different, protect ourselves. So you can open your eyes when you're ready. Sri Narsargadatta. Indian teacher, non-dual teacher, says that wise desire, our pure intention, is devotion to the real, to the infinite, to the eternal heart of being. Therefore, it's not desire that is wrong, but only its narrowness and smallness. He basically says that our intentions are too small. In other words, if you're in a moment of reactivity, if you're intending to fix the person, change them, control them, that's too small an intention. There's something bigger. There's a devotion, a turning towards what we love that's possible. But we get stuck. We get stuck in the reactivity. So the question is, how do we dive down to that deeper intention? And the first step is to forgive that we operate off of misguided intentions, just to forgive it that for every one of us, to some degree, there's surface waves that drive our behaviors. And it may be anxiety or the drive to stay busy or whatever. And that we can discover the oceanness, but we first have to forgive 
the fact that those surface waves are part of our conditioning. I read this, uh, this little boy was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. <laughs> so we all get caught in doing just what the self wants. We get caught in reacting to another person with anger, or blaming them, or complaining, or defending, or whatever. Every one of us does what the self wants, those superficial reactivities. So the first step is to forgive it to really forgive that you might move through the day with um, superficial intentions driving. I collect these therapist kind of um, cartoons sometimes, and in one, there's a mouse in a mouse hall, and he's a therapist. And the cat sitting outside slumped against the wall. And the therapist mouse is saying, don't worry, fantasies about devouring the doctor are perfectly normal. So. <laughs> So whatever you just went to in your own um, reflection on where you got reactive and where there might have been an intention that seemed less than noble, less than wise, the first step is to forgive it. In the Buddhist teachings, the Noble Eightfold Path starts with wise understanding. And it's the understanding that life is impermanent. It's the understanding that we suffer when we grasp or cling. It's the understanding that really we're connected to all beings. And if we have that understanding of our interconnectedness, of impermanence, of dukkha, suffering, then naturally our intentions will serve healing and freedom. But our conditioning is not to have that wisdom. Our conditioning is to in some way think we're permanent and we're solid and we're separate from others and we have to defend and attack. That's our conditioning. Forgive it. That's the first step. Forgive it. The second step is to be aware of it and then begin to investigate and sense what's really underneath the contracted intention. So I'll give you an example. That um, one man I was working with a couple of years ago, he was the middle child in a family. He grew up in a family that had a lot of conflict. Uh, one of his parents was alcoholic. So he, became, he was kind of a peacemaker. He was also rather invisible. He didn't feel real important in the family. But he was kind of a peacemaker. Um, and his, his uh, role was very accommodating. Like that, that the way he kept the peace was to accommodate and try to take care of people's needs, anticipate people's needs, and so on. And so um, by the time he came in and we got together, he was really depressed as an adult because in his adult family, he and his wife and children, he again was always accommodating. And at depression is anger turned inward. He was, um, you know, instead of really responding and feeling like he could do, do what he wanted and get what he wanted, he was always taking care of everybody, placating, accommodating, trying to meet everybody's needs and felt like he didn't have a life. So that's how I, that's what he brought in. So we started exploring the intention underneath all this accommodating. And what he got to, which is no surprise, is that um, it was a way of protecting himself, that if he could accommodate everybody and meet everybody's needs, then nobody would get angry and he'd be safe. Right? So that was a starting point. Now how do you dive deeper? So I asked him to get in touch with, okay, the want to feel safe to protect from anger. 
and he was he breathed into it and he felt the fear of other people's anger and he felt underneath that you know what was really there and there was this deep longing to feel the loving that was possible and he was trying to get everybody peaceful so he could get to the loving it's like he couldn't feel love unless it was safe enough because that his family of origin didn't allow it so he was constantly through his life recreating situations where he was accommodating and trying to make everything peaceful so he could relax enough and feel his connection to people. So then I asked him, well, what about right now? What if you just stay present right now? Is that connection possible? And this was where the breakthrough was. There is a teaching that everything we long for, everything, is already here it's already here if we can really arrive in presence. The more he became present with that longing to feel peaceful, to feel connection, the more he discovered this tenderness, this tenderness of heart that was already here. He had been running from it and being so busy placating and accommodating everybody. He needed to come home to presence. He needed to stop listening to all the voices out there saying, take care of me, do this, accommodate that, and listen to his own heart. This is the path of diving deeper. Mary Oliver puts it this way. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop you knew what you had to do. It was already late enough and a wild night, but little by little as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save. And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. The only way we'll have no regrets in our relationships with others is if we come into that presence that can listen inwardly to the voice of our own heart. If we can't listen to the longing and the love that's in our own heart, we're going to constantly be either trying to control others or defend against others, but not be with others, not really open to the love that's with others. There's a real power to the practice of remembering our intention, remembering what matters. We go into trance in an instant. We might say, okay, what matters is loving presence. And as soon as we're, we get on the phone or we're out at a meeting or whatever, we click right back into our persona, which has its defenses and has its aggressions and so on. We forget. One man told, in a story I'm about to tell you, really let his intention be in every situation with others to, to foster a sense of connection and peace. Interestingly, he was a policeman. 
I want to read you this. He describes his way of working. He says, now there are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. Anti-crime guy says you have to think like a criminal. And some police learn that so well, they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves. How I'm working with it, my intent is really different. I'm a peace officer, not a police officer, a peace officer. And I see that humans are essentially pure and innocent and of one good nature. Now, it's interesting how this works. When you're holding in thought a vision of our unity and good, you frequently spot a criminal motive arising or evident in someone. It's a kind of spiritual radar. Crimes can be prevented that way. So I work not only to prevent crime, but to eliminate its causes in greed and fear, not just the social causes everyone talks about. Even when it gets to conflict, I'm a peace officer. I had arrested a very angry man who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to a paddy wagon, he spat in my face. That was something. And he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him and put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And again, I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers in love. When I got to the station, I was moved to spontaneously to say, look, if I've done something to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me like I was totally nuts. Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to the criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. We got to a spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly. So did I. Then he said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. I just felt this deep appreciation. Turned out on his rap sheet, he had done a lot of time in a couple of bad prisons and had trouble with some harsh guards. I symbolized something, and I saw that turn around, a kind of healing. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not this vision of our true nature really has power? Maybe people will say you're taking chances without any vision. Your vision is your protection, your intention. Your intention to see what is true brings it out and brings it alive. So I share this because when you become more and more awake to what matters to you, it's contagious. If you're valuing presence, if you're valuing the connection that's possible with others, if your intention is namaste, is to bow to the goodness in others, that very intention helps to wake other people up. Barbara Kingsolver says, here's what I've decided. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. What I want is so simple, I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness. So when we explore in our lives what it means to live without regrets, it takes some training of the mind. Because our habit is to get caught in the misguided intentions. We're going to, as, as you might have checked in with your own in a reactive situation, we're going to keep on reacting. We're going to keep on being driven by feelings of 
having to protect ourselves or get something. So it takes practice. It takes asking that question again and again. What really matters? What really matters? For this woman who lost her husband, by remembering that she wanted to live with no regrets, really the best of her was able to shine through that remembering. And it's possible for each of us. It's, it may be that for some of us we're really facing something, one of those living, dying uh, situations where it's easier to remember what matters. And for others, or maybe we're a little more in the trance of, well, life is going on and on and on, and it takes getting more alert. But either way, this is the invitation of the path to let it be part of your practice, just the way we start our meditations, starting your day, starting certain interactions, beginning your moments over and over with this question, what is it that I really care about? In the moments you ask that question, you start coming home to who you are, and then we live from it. The first of the Eightfold Path is this wisdom that sees how it is, that we're connected, that life is brief, it's impermanent. The second is that out of that, the intention comes to serve awakening and healing, to realize that truth more fully. And that intention then leads to right action, or it's called wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, that we actually embody it So I'd like to carry forward the last meditation and explore how in that situation where you could get stuck and reactive, you can live from a deeper intention. So this is the final meditation. So in this practice tonight of of diving more deeply, of turning towards what we love, we begin again by pausing. Just even now, you might just let go of everything you might have been reflecting on or thinking about and just see how fully you can be right here. You might let the breath be at the center of your attention, relaxing with the inflow relaxing with the outflow, listening, listening to and feeling the moment right here. And from this place of presence, calling forward a life situation, circumstance with another person, where you'd like to dive deeper, you'd like to be living from your pure intention, your wise intention. So bring that same situation up. And let yourself take some moments to sense again what is triggered. 
You wouldn't be reactive unless some fear, some hurt, some deep wanting was triggered. Let yourself offer a very kind and forgiving presence to whatever gets triggered with this person in you. Remember the beginning of diving is to forgive what the reactivity is about, to forgive that reaction, that humanness. To forgive that we want to make people different to forgive, that we withdraw to protect ourselves, that we blame. That we lash out. You might even mentally say, forgiven, forgiven, just to whisper inwardly so that there's that kind of atmosphere of kindness and wisdom. This is just a part of human nature. Sensing where the reaction's coming from to that person and going deeper to sense what is it you're really wanting? What's the deeper longing here? Is it like this man I described that you want things to be peaceful so you can feel a connection, so you can feel love? Are you wanting understanding? Sense what most matters to you. If you could be at the end of your life looking back, how would you want to move through this situation with this person? What's the outcome you want? What do you want to experience with this person? This is part of turning towards what you love, remembering what you really care about. You might call on the wisest, most loving place in you that knows what matters, that knows what you love, and imagine that if you could stay in touch with this place, how you could rerun this situation, how you could speak and act in a way that would express your deeper longing. How could you live this situation with this person and have no regrets? And take some moments now to rerun it in a way 
that really expresses who you can be from your wisest place, from remembering your deeper aspiration. Who are you when you're remembering your deepest aspiration? Sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you as a fish out of water Here's the surfs, come back. This turn towards what you deeply love saves you. May we each live our days without regrets. May we remember our love of loving presence. May our words and actions express that love. May all beings awaken. May all beings touch great natural peace. May all beings be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.